Hi, I'm Sarah Shea. And I'm Strangely Duesberg. Welcome to the Pilot House. A podcast where we watch all the shows we missed the first time around. And try to figure out where the heck they were going with this. So this episode is a bit of a mixed bag because I have seen all of Carnival, but you've only seen some of it. So Sarah, what, what do you know about Carnival? Well... I was interested in watching it. I never saw it on the air, but mm-hmm. I'd heard good things about it. So me and a friend rented the first season on DVD a number of years ago before I had Netflix or before, I don't, maybe that was even before Netflix did streaming, but mm-hmm. we rented the first season on DVD and we took out the first disc from the box and we put it in my DVD player and without really looking, we just clicked on the first episode on that disc and started watching and we're very confused about why... They didn't seem to be explaining anything. Just stuff was happening and everyone was talking as if they already knew it was happening. There was no expo log or like anything. And we're like, what? And then there was a huge reveal where we went, oh, we're clearly supposed to know who this person is. Mm -hmm. This cannot actually be the pilot. And we looked and someone had put the discs back in the wrong order. Kids, this used to happen with rentals. Oh, God. Back in the day. And we didn't look clearly enough. And so we had just watched the first episode of the third disc or something like that. So it was, you know, some big reveal like later in the first season. Mm-hmm. And then we went, Ugh. well, now we've had some big thing spoiled for us. We don't know what it is exactly. Uh, I don't remember now, but like we didn't want to just go back and immediately start watching the first season knowing. So we just returned the DVDs. We watched something else and we thought, we'll come back to the show in a few years when we've forgotten about this. Mm-hmm. We never got around to it. And now I don't remember anything Uh about anything that happened except that the reveal was a person's face thank you pepper yeah it was it was the reveal of the person who's been doing thing is person that person you know it was that sort of reveal i don't remember exactly what happened but that was the kind of thing i would not be surprised if as i'm watching the show if, if i end up watching more than the pilot I start to go, oh, I know what's coming. So it may still be spoiled for me, but I've at least forgotten mm-hmm. as much as I'm ever going to forget, probably. So w- what is your experience with the show? I, I have watched the entire series, I think, three or four times now. Mm-hmm. It, it's I love the intricate layering and depth and lived-in quality of this world. Yes. Which is, it, it's fascinating that you mentioned that it's like there wasn't really any expo log going on because like, in many ways that describes a lot of episodes of this show where it's just like people are only saying things that they would actually say. And so they feel very real and lived in that being said, like I obviously love the show because I've watched it so many times. Yeah. Every time I watch it again, I see something new. Yeah. And it's one of those, it's one of those pieces of art, like the first uh, Lord of the Rings trilogy or uh, the original Star Wars trilogy, where it's just like everybody was firing on all cylinders, like the art department, the actors, the, the score yeah. by, by Jeff Beale, like every single aspect of this is incredible. And I can't wait to talk about it with you. Yeah, I, I, I was really incredibly disappointed because everything about it seemed like a show I'd really enjoy. Mm-hmm. I guess I should say what I remember about it, which is that it's set in sort of like a Dust Bowl era circus or ca- traveling carnival, mm-hmm. presumably, since the show is, the title is Carnival with an E. <laughs> it's, it's pronounced Carnival. Okay. 
But it's uh, not about uh, carnival in 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 no, South America. But it is carnival spelled happens. like it's spelled yeah, weird. So it's spelled weird yeah. b- because aesthetic. But I definitely had that feeling of like everything's a bit dingy, everything's a bit dirty. Mm-hmm. It's it's it has a sort of a realish vibe to it. Mm-hmm. It's not a heightened reality type thing. Yeah. Um, that's the vibe that I remember, and that's about it. And isn't uh, the guy from White Collar in it? Yes. Yeah. Yes. I remember you saying that. I don't actually remember him being in it because he's a character a called Jonesy. Yeah. And he is delightful. All right. I'm really, I'm really looking forward to it. Because honestly, I've, few things have disappointed me as much as that. Because it's like, no matter how you feel about spoilers, it, it takes some of the wind out of your sails. If you're about to sit down and watch a show, and then you have something from later in the season just like dropped right yeah. in front of you. Like, maybe we'll wait a little while. I mean, we, we thought we'd maybe come back in a year or something, but we just never got around to it. You know, there's other shows to watch. And I always felt like when I'd think of it, I'd go, no, I feel like I remember too much about what happened. But now I really remembered like almost nothing. I'm, I'm sure some of it will start to ring true as I watch the show, which I'm just, I'm assuming right now we're going to end up doing a season one catch up about this. I hope so. I can't imagine me disliking the pilot enough to like not want to watch at least some more. Right. It just seems right up my alley. So yeah, let's go do it. It's time. It's time for me and Carnival to make peace. <laughs> Make peace with the carnival. Yeah. For some carnival justice. (laughs) (laughs) And we're back. Folks, we have just watched the pilot of Carnival. Carnival and I are finally back on the same page. We're <laughs> finally talking again. We've buried the hatchet in the dry, <laughs> packed earth of Dust Bowl, Arizona. I can't remember where it started now, but that's not important. Important thing is, we just watched Carnival. Which ran on HBO for two seasons, from 2003 to 2005. Uh, and I'm now going to address what I was wrong about. Which I didn't remember a lot, so there wasn't uh, a lot to be wrong about. But, I'll tell you one thing. I had no idea there was magic bullshit in this show. <laughs> I did not know we were going for some dark fantasy vibes. I had no memory of that. I mean, once it started to happen, I went, oh! sense i was surprised and then no that actually yeah no that fits that totally fits the vibe of the show but i didn't if you had asked me beforehand i mean i'd said in the what we know it's not like a heightened reality thing it's very realistic (laughs) which in some aspects of it it's going for intense yeah gritty gritty almost realism i think to kind of counteract the occasional bouts of well, and and the magic in this world is very much on the Newtonian scale of like energy being created or destroyed. Like if yeah. you're going to give life and heal someone, it's yeah. going to take life from something else nearby. Yeah, yeah. It definitely goes for a more naturalistic feel to when something uh, supernatural happens. Yeah, it yeah. It it feels more like uh, Gandalf's magic in the original Hobbit book, which is kind of like these small pushes, not like, I am flying through the air, shooting fire out of yeah. my palms, and we, but like... When someone does something 
magical, supernatural. Yeah. They're not waving their hands and glitter's not flying through yeah. the air. They're just like going, thing. The way that you would go, oh, I have to pick up this thing on the floor or whatever. Yeah. Like, oh, I have to go move uh, this box and put it on a shelf. They just go, oh, I'll set my hand on this thing and magical curve. You know, it's that, it's that kind of like tired sort of like, this is just how life is. There's an expansion of energy. Yeah, which I, I like that. I definitely enjoyed that. So I think that was the only thing I was wrong about. Um, there's plenty that I didn't know, yeah. but that was the only thing explicitly that I said in the what we know, and just now re-listening to it, I chuckled at like, ha ha, nope, wrong. So Sarah, how would you summarize this show in one sentence? Do you have a... Yes, I've actually written a little one-sentence synopsis. All right, let's hear it. A traveling carnival in Dust Bowl-era America picks up a mysterious young man on their way to California. It soon becomes clear that his fate is tied to the carnival and that he is more than he seems. I I think you pretty much nailed it. You know, the only thing I would change now is I would say a troubled young man. He comes across as more troubled than mysterious initially. The mystery comes in later. Yes. Yeah. He doesn't walk in like, well, hello. You you you, you mustn't ask questions about me. Yeah. Whoosh. He's not a Pedro Pascal character. He doesn't walk in with a cape like, don't ask questions. I'm mysterious. <laughs> He's just like, I don't know. Fuck, things are bad. Go away. And then, wait, a mystery? So, yeah. But uh, I feel pretty good about that synopsis otherwise. Yeah. Yeah, it's good. All right. Well, um, in the, now that we've dispensed with that bit of business... I think uh, we should uh, launch into a little bit of a recap of the pilot. And I will try to remember as best I can and feel free to poke me in the right direction if I skip a scene or something. So before we begin, I just want to say, we discussed before we started recording that there are two storylines going on in this pilot which do not yet intersect. Sure they will, but uh, I'm just going to describe one and then I'll describe the other one. So we're not having to try and cut back and forth because it's not a... It's not uber significant, uh, the cutting back and forth. Important for the storytelling visually, but not for recapping. So, we start with a young man in a terrible little farmhouse surrounded by dust. Where is he? Do you remember? I honestly don't remember. I want to say Oklahoma just because that was Dust Bowl, but I feel like not. They couldn't because they end up in California. Eventually, yes. Yeah, but I don't think that would have taken, like, weeks, surely. It, It... well, I mean, over the course of the of the the seasons, it does take them weeks and weeks to get to California. No, they're in California. No, oh, no. he's in California. The preacher is in California. Yes. Oh, okay. I, I that's be- what confused me. I was like, I mean, he's in the Dust Bowl. There are dust storms happening. Surely they are, if not in Oklahoma, near yeah. that area. But then it, I thought they were like immediately. In, okay. Yeah. Also, to be fair to you. Even though they are supposed to be thousands of miles away over in the Dust Bowl, all of it is being filmed on movie ranches in California. In, so, in my defense. In your defense. Okay. Okay. It's, it's being filmed within very close of each other. Yeah, there was nothing visual, aside from the fact that they, I'm sure they literally said on the screen, and I just wasn't paying close enough attention, that we're in Oklahoma. And then they show a sign saying California. I just interpreted that as, and now they have arrived in California, and yeah. my brain didn't think about that being a rather long journey right. uh, to take with the speed of their vehicles at the time. So, it's the Dust Bowl era, which is the 30s, if anyone is unfamiliar. Um, 
we are at a farm. It is swept by dust storms. There's nothing growing. There's nothing. It's, it's a desert. So it's a farmhouse in a desert. Uh, we meet our uh, main character, mm-hmm. Ben Hawkins, young man. Played by Nick Stahl. By Nick Stahl. Yes. Uh, now, we'll talk about him later. He is in the house alone with his mother, who is dying. It's a, it's a taut scene. She seems afraid of him, which at first you just assume is because... She's, you know, delirious with illness or whatever. He is very, very troubled by this situation. But he also seems kind of like he, he just is hoping that she'll just die and mm-hmm. not be in misery, leave both of them in misery, which she does. Uh, as he is attempting to dig a grave in the dry, dry, sandy earth with a short-handled, like, that even, even call that a shovel? Short handle shovel, yeah. Yeah, I was like, is there another name for that? Because it was, it did not look comfortable. It's doing a lot of bending. Anyway, uh, suddenly, out of nowhere, a very large tractor appears. Not a tractor, a bulldozer. Very large bulldozer appears. It's a little confusing at first because the carnival also rolls by at the exact same time. And at first I thought they were related, but apparently they just... He seems so completely alone in this desolate landscape. And then suddenly, both a bulldozer, which we learn is from the bank which foreclosed on the farm Mm -hmm. and also the caravan of carnival vehicles rolls by just about at the same time and they stop to watch and see what's happening and basically uh the bulldozer wants to run over ben and he's like fuck you i'm gonna this is my farm i'm gonna bury my mom at any rate jonesy decides to interfere our uh tim decay from uh from white collar mr white collar fellow (laughs) <laughs> he decides to interfere on a bet from Samson, who's played by, do you remember the actor's name? Michael J. Anderson. Yes. You thought he was in something else we watched. I thought he was, there was the, another person. the diminutive statured lead in Lost Girl. Lost Girl, yes. The, bar, the bartender. Yeah. You thought that was him, but yeah, no. They, they have a similar facial kind of vibe. But they don't especially look alike. But anyway. They, they, they both like wear like kind of vest, like suit yeah. kind of things. Yeah. They sort of have that like feeling of like wisdom in their features. Precisely. So Samson and mm-hmm. uh, kind of bets Jonesy two bits that the bulldozer will run the kid over. And Jonesy decides to ensure that he wins the bet by interfering. When they realize, all of them, that he is what he is trying to do, that he's trying to bury his mother, the bulldozer operator softens just enough to stop long enough so that uh, the rest of the, uh, most of the carnival people come over and end up uh, holding a funeral for Ben's mother. The second that one of the carnival performers stops leading everyone in a concertina version of Near My God to Thee, the second the song is over, the bulldozer rolls right into the house. So he wasn't softened very much. Just a little. Uh, at that point, Jonesy and Samson start arguing about whether they should take the kid with them. He clearly doesn't have anything to do. <laughs> Nothing left for him there. And they're arguing about whether the kid is too much trouble with a couple of other carnival people because he has, um, it, he has a very visible shekel on his leg and a broken chain suggesting that he escaped from a chain gang. Mm-hmm. Right at the point that they are arguing about it, uh, Ben passes out. <laughs> falls over in the middle of this uh, discussion, 
passes out, and they hear a siren of a, like a, some like a approaching police a, car. Approaching police car, and they go, "All right, let's get him out of here." So they bring him with them to the next town. And uh, when he wakes up and realizes he's surrounded by freaks, he fucks off to go do something else. Um, but he's eventually brought back to the carnival through an act of fate where a young woman, the daughter of... I guess she's the fortune teller, but also she's the daughter of the yeah. fortune teller. So Sophie is a, a Paul... Apollonia. A Paul, Apollonia's daughter. Yeah. And... Ha- also has a similar gift to Apollonia. Yeah. It's so, fortune telling. Yeah, kind of yeah. Thing. Which at, at, th- at that point, we have been given a slight hint that something supernatural is occurring because she's shown with her mother who is completely catatonic. Her eyes are open, but otherwise she doesn't seem to communicate or react to anything around her. But Sophie talks to her as if they're having a conversation, which at first you think is just, you know, someone talking to their parent who's in a coma or whatever. But then something sort of whimsical happens. Some tarot cards fly up into the air. And you're like, "Mm, wait, what is going on? Then later, uh, she drives into town to get gas for one of the trucks, for the carnival's trucks, uh, as they're setting up their carnival in this town. And she ends up being attacked by these two yokels at the gas station who attempt to rape her and Ben happens along just at the right time and notices the truck empty and hears her inside and goes and attacks the guys and between the two of them they you know make short work of the dudes and he ends up driving her back to the carnival so he has been drawn back by an act of fate once he is back Samson offers him a job there's also been a conversation while they were still driving uh, where Samson and Jonesy are talking, and Jonesy says, have you talked to management about the kid? And Samson says, yeah, I talked to him. So a single person, not management in the sense of a group of people who are managing. So it's, it seems to be a, a nickname, a euphemism for whoever's the boss. And we immediately know something is weird about this mysterious boss figure because Jones says, well, what did he say? And Samson says, he was expected, I think, something like that. And they're like, well, that's supposed to mean, well, you know, that's part of the course with management or something like that. So it's like, mm, something is sort of mysterious there. Once Ben has been drawn back to the carnival, Samson offers him a job. He's not really sold on it, but he also kind of acknowledges that he doesn't really have anything else to do or anywhere else to go. So he agrees to work temporarily for mm-hmm. the carnival. Uh, that night, uh, we see Ben walking around the carnival, and we actually get to see some of the performers and kind of get a sense. So they've got rides, and they've got games and things, shooting gallery type thing. They've got a little um, uh, Ferris wheel. Small one. A little one. Uh, we're also, we also meet uh, a young boy and girl, brother and sister, who live in the town. The girl... Uh, her legs are non-functioning, presumably polio or something like that. Um, they are at the carnival, and there's a very sweet scene of Jonesy uh, helping the little girl out of her little red, you know, radio flyer wagon her brother draws, drags her around in, putting her into the Ferris wheel and saying, did you give your ticket to the man? Well, here's two more for you and two more for your brother. Your money's no good here, Buttercup, or something like that. It was very sweet. It, it is, and it's it's 
there's this like very kind of sweet older brother kind of vibe to a lot of Jonesy's kindness. Like he's mm-hmm. not a, a sweet character all the time, but he's he has this kind of like r- rough like I want to say like kindness, but it's kindness that comes from like a, a fisherman's rough, calloused hands. Mm-hmm. Um, and a, a, a visual detail of Jonesy is that his leg is in a brace. Yes. And he walks with a very pronounced limp on a very stiff leg. And so just kind of this moment of him being incredibly sweet to this little crippled girl. Yeah. is It's just really beautiful. Yeah. It's especially nice because Ben witnesses this Mm -hmm. and Jonesy sees Ben and they make eye contact for a moment. And it's in stark contrast to earlier in the episode when Ben is first trying to leave. He wakes up in the bearded lady's uh, caravan Mm -hmm. naked because they've washed his clothes for him, which is nice. Yeah. He acts like they, 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 he says, you stole my duds. It's like they washed your clothes, jackass. (laughs) But um, he, finding himself naked and the bearded lady still asleep, steals her, like, a fancy silk robe or something. A kimono. Well, they call it a kimono, yeah. but, like, it's, it's a silk robe. Yeah, yeah. And he walks outside in it to go get his clothes, and then he trips, he gets, he sees all of the freak uh, show performers and is like, what? A guy with a tail. A super tall dude. Two ladies conjoined at the hip. And he falls into the mud. And then Jonesy makes fun of him. For wearing the kimono, quote unquote kimono, does like a little bit of a ooh la la, like gestures at his chest, like boobs. It was actually weird. I didn't understand the joke he was making at the time. I'm like, what is he doing? Why is he doing this weird thing? Because it seemed perfectly reasonable for me for a guy to put on a, a robe he found to be able to go outside. Yeah. I forgot that the past was sexist. Oops. <laughs> but Samson uh, clarifies it later, which was helpful. But it's in stark contrast to that moment mm-hmm. of Jonesy making fun of, uh, of, of ben. ben for no reason and now he's being super super nice to this little kid anyway it was a nice moment uh he also sees that there is a um, bit of a peep show where there are some ladies doing european muscle dancing i believe <laughs> the barker called it i've never heard that term before and when ben goes into the tent the, the, the women are just scantily clad and sort of shimmying around the stage they're not doing any discernible style of dance it's not belly dancing or something like that. No. They're just sort of like shimmying and shaking their boobs at the audience and stuff. There's not, nothing particular is going on. So European muscle dancing. That was a new one on me. <laughs> Doesn't sound sexy, really. Except European, I'm sure, sounded sort of exotic to some Okies in the Dust Bowl. But he also witnesses that there's a little bit of prostitution occurring around the peep, sh- peep show on the sly. Basically, it's a chance for Ben to check out the uh, the carnival. It's a chance for us to see what the setup is. When it's it's this lovely, uh, it provides a really stark contrast. So you're talking about the contrast between how Jonesy was kind of making fun of him earlier and then yeah. being really sweet. Yeah. It's also kind of like the initial moment of Ben encountering the carnival folk like he met them all at the impromptu funeral for his mom, but he mm-hmm. was very obviously very delirious and like yeah. he passed out. And then his kind of first aware encounter with all of these people is when he wakes up in the morning and kind of is like bumping into them and sort of like spinning, feeling very spun around. Yeah. And then, so that's sort of his first encounter with them. And then he gets to see them in the context of their shows. Yeah. As he's going through the carnival, he gets to see the quote unquote giant, you know, uh, entertaining little kids. and Oh, the strong man bending a metal bar. Mm -hmm. He sees the 
conjoined sisters doing like a little song routine. Mm-hmm. And it, it just sort of, it's a really fascinating contrast because his first impression of them is backstage when everybody's waking up in the morning and kind of like, Bleh. yeah. And then he gets to see them in the most flattering light of kind of the world that they create. Yeah. For the carnival at night. I'm just realizing now there was also a very important character we met earlier that I glossed over, which we've been seeing that Ben has nightmares, mm-hmm. which we're seeing bits and pieces of them. Very strange imagery, which makes basically no sense, which I'm sure will all come together later. Um, someone being chased through a cornfield by someone else with a lot of tattoos on their body. Um, two like officers, like high-ranking military officers having some sort of argument. Some war imagery, like presumably First World War imagery. Um, some various other things. Someone's hand holding like a piece of jewelry. There's a lot of very specific imagery that they're clearly setting up a lot of things that are going to come together. So he's having these nightmares. Later, when he's asleep in his delirium in Lila's uh, caravan, Lila is playing cards with uh, a man who appears to be some sort of mind reader. He's a mentalist. Okay. He is, uh, he seems, and he is, at first you think he's just good at, you know, he, he predicts what a card that she has in her hand and kind of tricks her into letting him win the game of, you know, gin they're playing or whatever, gin rummy or something like that. So he is also blind. Um, and she says something about Ben and says, I wonder what he's dreaming about. And the guy says, it's no business of yours. And she goes, oh, come on. Tell me what he's dreaming about. And you're like, oh, is he going to do some sort of like, hmm, my sense, whatever. Yeah. But he walks over, puts his hand on the kid's head, and then he's seeing the nightmare that we've been seeing. And he is almost knocked out. Like, Lila has to get up and tear him away yeah. from Ben to snap him out of it. And he mentions that the next day to Samson. And Samson's kind of like, ah, bullshit. But he's like, dude, that kid is dangerous. His name is Lodes, by the way. Lodes, the, the blind you. mentalist. Yeah, I was trying to figure out where his accent was from. He's singing along to Near My God to Thee in French during the funeral. But I didn't. He doesn't sound particularly French. So I was trying to figure out. Oh, maybe Cajun. That could be. I. I. He definitely has a, a an accent. Yeah. Something. Anyway, it's not a, a really dramatic one. Mm-hmm. He's not playing it up. It's not cartoonish, obviously. So, whatever it is. Anyway, so that's something that we've also seen. That's like. That is not normal. Right. That is not our normal reality. Um, I can't remember what happens next. Strangely, can you help me? Sure. You know, we just had that whole long sequence of Ben exploring the carnival for the evening. Yes. And then he wakes up the next morning and we see him, you know, we see him helping them pack up. He's like pitching in Mm -hmm. and they're all getting ready to leave the town. And Sophie comes over and says, last chance for me to read your cards. That's right. That's right. So then he goes into her caravan, and she reads his tarot. Every card she turns over results in him having a very visceral memory of his past. Mm -hmm. I can't remember what the three cards were. Uh, The second one was death. Mm -hmm. The third was the magician reversed. What was the first one? The moon. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I can't remember what that stands for. But he flashes back to, as a child, him holding onto this cat and his mother saying, what you can't you can't hold that cat? It's three days in the grave, like it's dead. You gotta let go of it. It could make you sick. She tries to take it away from him, and then in the next card, oh no, wait, is it something else in the first? The first memory was something else. So the 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 first card. Yeah, sorry. Then, it's, yeah, it's all right. 
I've watched it too many times. Yeah, so please help me. I'll help you with this, with mm. this little bit. Yeah. The first card, the moon, nighttime, it, it represents like shame mm-hmm. and hiding and, and, and something being pushed away, being pushed. Like he was shamed in this critical moment mm-hmm. where he's just found out that he has this power. Oh, that's right. Okay, so I didn't tell what the power yeah. was. His mom tries to take the cat away from him, and then the cat suddenly yow- like yowls and jumps out of her arms and is alive. Yes. And he picks up the cat again. So that's mm-hmm. what it is. Then the next one, death, he then remembers his mom taking the cat away, putting it in a bag and saying, God takes what's his. Mm-hmm. And you have no right to take it that back. So we're going to give this cat back to God and drowns the cat yes. in a wash tub while child Ben is freaking out and screaming. And then the third card is the magician reversed. And he remembers his mother sick and him, the age he is now, and his mother like clinging to a cross and saying, don't touch me. You're marked by the devil. You're marked by the beast. Don't touch me. Stay away from me. And being like super freaked out by him and him just being like, but mom. And then she says, the magician, you have, you know, you have a power. You have great abilities and he says what does reversed mean she goes it means that it's wasted that you haven't used it properly it hasn't been allowed to be shown to the world or whatever uh because in that formative moment with his mother yeah she she, told him that his gift was evil yeah so he hid it and this is the first we're learning that he has any sort of gift he then freaked out stumbles out of the caravan and runs and there's this farm right next to the area where they were setting up. And he runs through the field and collapses next to this, like, old, broken-down tractor or something like that and starts crying. And then you hear a voice say, why are you crying? And it's the little girl sitting in her radio flyer wagon. So when he walks over to the the little polio girl, she says, Grammy says, y'all are cursed. Y'all are marked. Yeah. Which echoes his memory of what his mother said and also yes. Sophie says something similar. So it's like all of these voices are saying you're marked. Yeah. And he says, I I don't, I don't no. think they are. Oh yeah. She, he says, nah, they're just people. Yeah. And then he asks her, how long have you been like that? And she says forever. And he says, does it hurt? And she kind of nods and he walks over to her, crouches down, puts his hands on her legs and starts, I mean, clearly he's exerting some effort. Mm-hmm. There's focus, and you see behind him that all the plants there were there was there were there were plants. There was some mm-hmm. kind of crop growing in that field, in addition to a bunch of ivy like weeds growing over this broken down tractor. It all starts to brown and wither and die. The next thing you see is him running across the field to join because the circuit, like Samson, at one point saw him talking to a little girl and was like, "Hey, you know, last ch- call, you coming with us?" He ignores him to keep talking to a little girl, and Samson's like, "Ah, eh, fuck him," and they start heading out. So we see Ben running away to jump and just barely grab onto one of the 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 trucks and throw himself in the truck on top of some, you know, the canvas t- tent top or something like that. Um, and kind of passes out there. And then they go back and we see the little girl is standing next to her wagon, watching them leave. And then she runs sort of awkwardly. They didn't make her like perfectly healed, which would have been a bit unrealistic. You know, muscle atrophy is a thing. Mm-hmm. But she's kind of like running, sort of limping awkwardly, but she's moving at a pretty good clip. And as she's running towards the house, as she's passing every row of crops, they're all dying. Yeah. Which was like, I... 
I didn't expect the transfer of energy thing to happen in the first place, but I was like, oh, that makes sense. He's drawing life out of that. But the fact that she continues to draw life was like, oh, that's dark, though. Yeah. That's freaky. She, Even though he's gone and her legs are fixed, more or less, she's continuing. The magic is continuing to draw the life out of the crop. So I was like, oh, that's bad for her family, though. Like, it's... Which... <laughs> anyway. Which also, like... There's also, like, the uncomfortable juxtaposition, like, of the Dust Bowl. Yeah. So you have Ben as this character who has this gift that, though it gives life, it clearly takes a lot of life from something else. Yeah. And you, this is entirely my supposition. This is not, like, ever stated in the show. This isn't a spoiler. This is, okay. I guess, sort of my fan theory or whatever. But it's sort of like, if you had this gift... And meanwhile, the dust bowl started happening to your family farm, all the farms around you, like mm -hmm. the whole country. Probably some part of you would wonder if you'd caused it. Especially, yeah, if he'd ever seen something like that happen, where he healed someone and a plant nearby died. He'd be, ooh. Yeah. Shit. Yeah. It also, I started to wonder, like, oh, this, this has got to be related to why he was imprisoned. Possibly, yeah. Yeah. So anyway, um, it also just shows it's not a, a happy ending, even for the little girl, per se. Yeah. She's got her, her mobility back, but it may have repercussions. Anyway. So meanwhile, in Mintern, California. Yeah, this is so all the all the all the while we've been cutting back and forth to Mintern, California, where we meet uh, a preacher of some stripe. Methodist. He's Methodist. He's Methodist, thank you. Uh played by Played by Clancy Brown. Oh, yeah. I was so stoked. I had no idea he was in this. Also, you don't get to see him play someone that sort of clean and sort of wholesome very often. Mm -hmm. Really. I guess not clean. He, he often plays, like, bad authority figures. Like, I'm thinking his specifically his role in uh, Shawshank. Yeah. But this was just like, he seemed fairly wholesome. I don't know. We'll see what happens with the character. But he seemed throughout the episode to be not bad mm -hmm. uh which is kind of refreshing because clans around it's delightful but he does do a good villain so you see that a lot from him anyway uh we first meet him he is in his church uh at doing a bit of a, a a preach he's doing a preach at them and all the people in the audience are sort of you know a bit a bit shabby because you know dust bowl depression times um and his, there's a woman off to the side um, who is, we find out later is his sister. And she notices a woman in the audience who is maybe a little more disheveled and uh, dirty than the, everyone else. And when he is doing his sermon and the people come around with the little baskets for donations. What is that called? That's a word for that. taking the offering. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Christian person. <laughs> she put some money in the in the basket and makes just slightly more eye contact with the person mm -hmm. who's holding it than you might expect. And we just we know there's something there because the sister notices it. Then when they start leading the final song, which was he's got the whole world in his hands, which I just felt like I bet this was like like a hip new song at the time it was a bit like modern or something right it felt that way because at the beginning they're singing mm -hmm. and then he does his sermon and they sing again at the beginning they're singing something more traditional 
I don't remember what, but something a little more him-like. Yeah. And at the end, they're like, he's got the whole world in his hands. And I'm like, this feels so, like, also, I'm used to it being sung by, like, really cheesy people who are all clapping. And yeah. they're all saying, singing it relatively sedate. But it's still sort of a slightly more cheerful sing-songy yeah. thing. I know, I remember thinking at the time, like, oh, I bet this at the time, some people were like, oh, these newfangled hymns. Yeah. They're not nearly dirge-like enough. So as that song is being sung, this woman starts to leave, but is stopped by the preacher's sister. So then she is brought to the preacher's house. Uh, we see in the next scene, he sort of says, oh, would you like something to drink? I just, you know, wanted to talk to you or something like that. And he says, where are you from? And she says, Oklahoma, I believe. She said, we, you know, we just, uh, my whole family came out here. Oh, we came out for the cantaloupe. So they came out to get work, work uh uh, picking fruit said but there's not enough work so we're up at the camp can't miss it it's a pretty big one so you know they're at some sort of a, like a shanty town mm -hmm. of other people who've come there who have not actually gotten work she said but we don't have a preacher up there so i've been coming down here most sundays anyway he takes her hand as if he's just going to like clasp it or shake her hand or something and then reaches into her sleeve and pulls out i assume it's supposed to be a dollar a silver dollar yeah. silver dollar and she's all immediate, like, I, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to take it. And it's very, I mean, you feel very bad for her. And at, you're you're kind of freaked out at first because you think he's going to be, like, a dick about it. Which he's not nice about it, per se. But as far as um, men of the cloth in small towns in the, uh, you know, in that part of the century, uh, he could have been worse, I guess. He does say, you know, he kind of say, like, theft, you know, like... We all have within us the seeds of redemption and damnation, you know. But he puts the coin back in her hand mm -hmm. and folds her fingers around it and says, you understand that, don't you? You know, saying, like, I'm going to let you take this money, but, like, maybe don't steal anymore because it's not great. It's kind of like like a Valjean moment with the, uh, the priest at the beginning of Les Mis. Yeah, yeah, like, take this because I know you need it, but, like, probably don't steal anymore in the future. It's, ba it's probably a bad for, idea for you. And then as she's kind of crying and apologizing, she starts kind of choking and all of a sudden spews several more coins out of her mouth. And he is like, the fuck? And immediately was like, get down on your knees, start praying. Get down on your knees and pray. And he starts praying and like, just like, get down on your knees. Like, and then she, she chokes out more and he's trying to do like, you know, some sort of exorcism type of prayer. And he's trying to get her to pray along with him. And she's trying to, but every few words, she starts choking again and spews more coins out of her mouth. Until finally, he comes over to her, grasps her in his arms and holds her close and is saying something like, like, Lord, let her go or something like that. Or please let her heal her or something like that. And finally, kind of some noise. I think there was some kind of sound in the room, in the soundtrack that was emphasizing sort of weird shits happening. And then it dies down. And she's sort of crying in his arms and he's patting her and comforting her and he looks on the floor behind him and the coins are all gone. Mm -hmm. Which I thought he was like, uh, for a second I thought he was looking to be like, how much did you just, <laughs> how much did I just make? But it's, he's looking and they're gone. This, this scene was so disturbing for me. So I saw this for the first time when I was about 15. And it was incredibly disturbing. Yeah. This person like vomiting coins and yeah. like choking on their, their, th you know, like I had, I had shoplifted a couple times when I was about 15 and then I saw this and like, I never shoplifted again. It was just like terrifying. The conception of it was terrifying. Put the fear of God in you. Yeah, it did. <laughs> Literally. Uh, uh, but 
I, it's not frightening to me anymore because we've now watched The Good Place and there's that scene where Janet is malfunctioning and she's like vomiting pennies, pennies everywhere. <laughs> and that's all I could think about while that's, we were watching this just now. I didn't make that connection, but that's because this is the first scene where we really see something inarguably supernatural yeah. happening. Like, I feel like loads reading... Uh, Ben's mind, the cards, uh, um, Sophia's uh, Sophie's mother, and you know, the cards flying there. All those things were like were a little more low low key. Could be something else or whatever. Yeah, or like, it's, it's like there's implied telekinesis, implied telepathy. Yeah, but it's all like it's still a little bit. Yeah, you know what's going on. But this is like two people just had a shared hallucination. Yeah, yeah. very a very violent one, yeah. like very realistic one. So it's like that's intense. The next scene that we see with the preacher is, oh, we see some of the dreams again. Mm-hmm. We go to these, the, the almost the exact same dreams, but with a few additional images we didn't see before. Person running through the cornfield, we see the soldiers, but we see at least two or three images that weren't in the dream before, one of which is a neon sign for a place called Mr. Chin's, like a, a Chinese restaurant. And then... We see the preacher waking up. So we know the preacher this time was the one having the dream. The same, almost the exact same dream that Ben was having. He is startled awake in his chair beside the radio, you know, where he was reading his Bible probably, where his sister is sitting. And he just gets up and walks out of the room. And then we see him sort of walking through his town. I'm just, I'm just going to interrupt you. Yeah. Just because it's just like one of those tiny details that I love. Mm-hmm. The radio drama that they're listening to is The Shadow. Oh, I noticed that in the credits, and I went, wait, when did they use the shadow? Because they didn't use the part where they say, who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. Yeah. They, were, they used a more subtle yeah. cut from an episode. Which, is, which is a, a, a wonderful thing that this show does, is it uses contemporary media in, in far more subtle ways than we're used to seeing in, in like period films and things. It's like, yeah. if there's a period film where people are fighting something supernatural they're walking out of a showing of Frankenstein. Yeah. Or so, you know, like it's like that kind of thing. Yeah. If if two people are shown in a movie theater and they're going to bother to show what's on the screen, they're going to show an iconic moment from the movie that they're yeah. watching. Right, yeah. It's, they're going to... it's If they're watching Frankenstein, when they look up at the screen, it's going to be the it's alive moment yeah. so you know immediately what they are watching. Or like yeah. watching Wizard of Oz. I don't think we're in Kansas anymore, Toto. Yeah. It's never going to be a more subtle scene that you might not immediately... I don't know that there's a scene in... Wizard of Oz that you wouldn't recognize, God, but... I don't know why that is my Judy Garland impersonation. No, it, I, <laughs> impersonation is a strong word, strangely. Well, that, that's what I'm saying. I don't know why that is my attempt at that. It was yeah. bad. Anyway, anyway, the shadow knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men. But Brother Justin doesn't yet. <laughs> Brother Justin, Clancy Brown's character. So he gets up and starts walking around his town at night, just sort of walking around looking. He's sort of seeing all the people at the camp mm-hmm. um, who are just doing life things and playing a banjo and sitting around a campfire and like hanging out with a dog and what have you. And then he ends up standing in front of this Chinese restaurant such dance hall type place, which I don't think I realized that neon signs were, a, were around, especially on that scale in such a small town. It's quite a large sign. I don't, I don't think I was like, I was surprised that seemed, um, that felt out of place to me. I'm sure it's accurate um, to the time period. But I was like, wow, that is a very large scale neon sign for a dance hall 
you know, slash Chinese restaurant in this relatively small town. It, you keep calling it a Chinese restaurant. Sorry. I, it's, no, it's fine. I don't know if it's a restaurant it's, or not. Uh, it's a, I mean, it's, it, it's implied that there's also prostitution yes. going on. But I didn't know if it, it, it could be a lot of right. things as a front. There was a sign in the window, that another neon sign said dancing. Mm-hmm. So I know at least there was some sort of entertainment it's, it's going on. It's the gem saloon, too. Yeah. Well, this as he's standing there yeah. looking at the sign, recognizing it perhaps as being part of his dream, this young, you know, East Asian woman in a very tight red, um, oh, what's that kind of uh, Chinese-style dress with the high collar? Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I know the name of it, and it's in my brain somewhere, but you know the type of dress yes. that I mean. So uh, a high collar and uh, uh, the the buttons go kind of um, diagonal across the chest. Anyway, she's got her hair up in a bun, and she comes up to him and goes, "Hello, handsome man. Me so lonely," or some too, so like cliche shit like that. And he takes a hold of her hands and pulls them away from him, and she's angry and curses at him in presumably Chinese, but who knows? She could be from anywhere. Uh, I watched it with a friend who speaks Chinese. It's Chinese. Oh, okay. I was just like thinking in the moment, like for all I, I know, she's speaking Korean and she's just playing up the the Chinese Im- I, look because it's for her job. You know, I don't know which of the Chinese languages it is. Cause yeah, you know, there's Mandarin, Mandarin and Cantonese, Cantonese, and, yeah, but it's Chinese. It is an Chinese language. Yes. Uh, he, you know, she walks away, and then as he is looking at the sign, he notices it started to snow. It's clearly not winter. Also, the snow, he suddenly looks around and all the streets are empty. First of all, he's alone now. And the streets and cars are all covered with snow, far more than could accumulate in a few seconds. And he's sort of looking around in, in, in confusion at this. And then he feels something drip on his face. And he looks down at his hands and there's blood dripping on his hands, and all of a sudden the snow turns to rain, and it is raining blood down on him. It is worth noting that during his sermon earlier, he compared the dust storms uh, that are plaguing the country at that time as being comparable to the plagues Mm -hmm. in Egypt, Uh, the biblical-type plagues. So now it is raining blood on him, and he is being completely drenched in blood, and he looks up, and the sign, the neon sign begins to explode until there are only two pieces of neon still lit, and they're part of the letter H that form a cross. So all he sees is this glowing cross. He falls to his knees, clasps his hands, bows his head, begins praying fervently, and then all of a sudden, something is different. He looks up, streets and back to normal. No rain, no blood, no snow, people just walking around dancing, and he sort of awkwardly is sitting there on his knees... Oops. And I believe that is the end. That's the end of Brother Justin's story. Yeah. Then so. we go back to the carnival and then we, we end the story with, uh, I believe, the, the end of the car, the actual episode ends with uh, the little girl running mm-hmm. across the field, right? And killing yes. the crops as she goes. Yeah. So that's, that's the episode, folks. Where did the money go? Welcome to our very first segment where we discuss where the money went. I mean, this is an HBO show. Yeah. So it's a bit different, as we've talked about with, with Deadwood previously, that there's a lot more money sort of ready to roll up front. Uh, but in the case of this show, I feel like, I mean, it's a period show. Uh, so you're already, you've got 
they're building, you know, towns and and streets and an entire carnival mm-hmm. with all the, the whimsical things. And it has a very distinctive style, very strong style throughout the whole thing of sort of that time period, but also something that's unique to the show. Yes. I'm searching for a term or a word for this, but the idea that I really see is that it's a past that never was. Yes. So yes. even though they're they're using chairs that you would see in the 1930s and they're driving vehicles that you would see in the 1930s, although um, if you could, there's a whole internet rabbit hole of how some of the trucks were built after the show was supposed to have taken place or whatever. Oh no! But the the, the show I- is ruined now. <laughs> Got him. But the don't I- let's don't ask my sister about Miss Fisher's gun. Okay, don't get don't get her started. <laughs> but I think what that style of production design does is it creates this sort of mythic era. Yes. Because most of the props and set design and set dressing is clearly stuff that was purchased at antique malls and mm-hmm. from antique shops and things like that. So if there's sort of like a an antique armchair in somebody's study in their house. Yeah. It's an it's an antique armchair. It doesn't look new. Yeah. Nothing in the show looks new. Even though mm-hmm. even in places where they should have a new one, it's just a very well cared for antique that they're using as a prop. Yeah. And I think what that does is it almost creates this feeling I don't know if you've ever been to one of those like living museums where you can tour an old house and they've got all the furniture just how it was. Mm, yeah. And there's like a rope across the doorway of the room. Yeah. It feels when you're watching the show as if you're you've entered one of those houses and then the ghosts of the people are also there. Yeah. Like acting out the scenes. Yeah. Which then creates this kind of uncanny valley of it's it's not a, a constructed world, it's like a remembered world. Sorry. Oh, that's no, that's a good way of putting it. I like that. I've got I've got some deep thoughts about the show. I definitely had some feelings during the show about I mean the logo for their carnival mm-hmm. feels a little too modern. Mm-hmm. With the style of the words, the, yes. the, the style of the lettering, but it very much suits the aesthetic of the show. Yeah, I felt, I remember thinking like that font does not scream to me, you know, nineteen thirty, but it's kind of okay because it fits the aesthetic of the show itself. Yeah, those... it is the logo of the show, which is also the logo of their carnival. It is painted on their some of the trucks and things like that. Um, but yeah, I felt like there was a good balance of things that were genuinely accurate and things that were like a little bit unique to the show, given a little bit of their own style. I really enjoyed it, like the the aesthetic. I mean, and in addition to the fact that they had to shoot a lot of stuff for this pilot, in addition to all the story in the pilot, they had to shoot all of the dream sequences, so... which are a lot of different little disparate moments, which presumably are going to be part of larger scenes we will see more of later. Yes. Like, that's that's a lot to shoot. You're basically shooting scenes from later in the show before you've even done the pilot. And, yeah. like, that's, that's a lot to do. They could have been more vague mm-hmm. uh, with the dream sequence, but instead we saw, I mean, the nightmare. Like, we saw quite a lot of moments from very specific scenes that's like... Okay, they had to cast people and sh- and do costumes and sets and shoot scenes that probably aren't going to come up till maybe the end of the season or something. That's that's kind of intense. It's I I believe and we that, haven't even gotten to the su- the special effects for all the supernatural stuff yet. Right. I believe that some of that dream sequence stuff was actually like back edited. So because I I don't I'm not a hundred percent sure, but I think Ooh, this entire point. season was shot before it aired. 
Oh. Similar to the first season of Buffy. where That would make a lot of sense. Buffy has that nightmare in the very first episode of Buffy, I think. And they were able, first or second episode, but they were able to edit in that. scenes from the finale of like the big fight in the finale into the first episode. Because oh. the whole season had been shot already. So they had filmed some sort of vague dream sequence stuff. That that especially makes sense in the context of an HBO show that mm-hmm. they might shoot the whole thing. Okay, that makes sense that they... Also, it'd be hard. It'd be a hard sell, I think, production-wise, to write that and be like, "No, no, no, we need to shoot a bunch of scenes from later in the season, right. but we need to do them right now." Yeah. That makes sense. Not not only all that production design stuff. I I just want to do a shout out to the fact that the majority of this is shot on location using natural light, which oh. for a television show in the early aughts was ambitious. Yeah, and it looks great for it. Yeah. That was one of the reasons that the show ended up being prematurely canceled is that it was just incredibly expensive and difficult to produce because of the amount of just work. Yeah. And the limited time. If you're shooting by daylight, you just have a a finite number of hours during which the light is the same. Yeah. So. It's sort of interesting going back and revisiting Deadwood and Carnival over this past year together that... You're watching HBO take the first steps into a formula that would eventually become the wildly successful Game of Thrones. Mm-hmm. Intensely crafted, like, naturalistic shooting, like, that kind of stuff. They finally got the formula right with Game of Thrones and had a hit. But, like, somebody at HBO clearly was kind of getting an inkling for this, like, way earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Another thing, too, with the, with the nightmare shots, that does make sense. They probably did shoot those scenes later and then back edit them. However... They definitely went out of their way to show all of the actors, all of the people in the carnival. There were lots of shots of just a person standing doing nothing, and then you, I would hear you chuckle. Or something. I'm like, well, clearly that character's going to do something cool later, because they're not doing anything right now. So they, they didn't cover their ass the way sometimes a pilot will, where they go out of the way to not to show any extra characters, mm-hmm. but they don't have to, so they don't have to cast those people or shoot them before the show is picked up or before they get to this episode where that person's important. They go out of their way to show a lot of the, not just the performers during the scene where Ben is walking around the carnival, but just scenes where someone's like standing. Yeah. Standing around. I guess I didn't know who all of them were. So maybe they do all eventually get to do a performance or something, but it, it felt like they were like, yes, we want this to be a complete world from the get go. You see everybody. Ben doesn't just meet the guy in charge and the pretty girl and maybe one other person or something like that. He he, there. It's a fully fleshed out community right from the get go. Right, which is something that like a show like Deadwood also does, where there are people who are background characters, like mm-hmm. there's just somebody walking by in the background of a shot that later is a foreground character who might say a line mm-hmm. and you. You think back to earlier in the episode, and you're like, I saw that guy's hat go by yeah, yeah. earlier. This is very similar to that. There's there's one of my favorite examples of it in this episode is there's a dialogue scene between Jonesy and Samson. Um, between Jonesy and Samson. And then later we see a dialogue scene between two other characters. And Jonesy and Samson, having the conversation, are continuing their walk. Just like tiny little dots in the background. Oh, nice. And you can tell it's them because one is limping and, and Samson has the cane and he's diminutive. Yeah. And it's just like, it feels living and breathing. Yeah, yeah. In this... It feels un- very real and complete. 
which is expensive, and that's where the money went. Indeed. Which means it's time for... Clips and Chips! This is a segment where we speculate about future cliffhangers for the season, and also chips, relationships, characters possibly getting together, possibly just having future interactions. Yeah. Cliffs and chips. It's a time to talk about predictions for the rest of the show. Now, of course, you can't really indulge in predictions, having seen the whole show, but I shall do a little bit of it, which, uh, unfortunately, I did have that uh, big reveal spoiled for me, so I know that there's going to be a big reveal later in the season, and my prediction just from the pilot is it's going to be the management. Don't try not to do anything with your face. (laughs) You're doing a great job. But that's just, that's what it seems like, just from the pilot, it seems like, revealing who the management is and what their whole deal is. I might have made that prediction even without my little spoiler experience in the past. It just seems like that's the the thing they're the most vague about. Um, so finding out who the management is, potentially finding out Ben's story, because Samson tries to get some information about his past out of him and he doesn't want to talk about it. So we don't know still uh, where, how he ended up imprisoned, how he got out of the chain gang, when, and exactly the terms of did he find out his mother was sick and return home to take care of her. We don't know exactly the terms there, so um, I don't know. They could totally reveal all that in the second episode. Sometimes shows do things like that. Or it might end up being the kind of the big thing at the end of the season. I can't decide if I think that them getting to California and interacting with Brother Justin is going to happen sooner and then their interactions will be more of the plot of the show or if that's something that's going to happen like end of season one, like they finally, those two storylines intersect. I really feel like I can't make a call on that. It's, 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 It's interesting that this show is taking place in two different areas and it's in it by the end of the pilot, we've been giving the only connection between them is that they're having similar dreams. We've been given nothing else to connect them. As regards ships, uh, it seems like they're uh, leading us by the nose in the direction of Ben and Sophie having some kind of relationship, although it's definitely not heavy handed. Uh, I guess. I kind of said leading us by the nose because it just seems like, well, they're the two young, kind of attractive people and they seem somewhat drawn to each other. But it's not, you know, he's not like mooning over her or like they're, they're a bit awkward around each other. She seems to kind of like him, but she also seems just sort of curious about him. Mm-hmm. Um, and he seems a little more just like, he does see her. There's a significant moment when at the funeral he sees her from far away. And Jonesy sees him seeing her. That seemed like the moment where I was like, oh, okay. And she's Clea Duvall, so she's not nobody. She's, uh... Yeah, she's... so much of what I find attractive in, like, lady-type people was very informed by the fact that I watched this show, like, kind of concurrently with my teenage pubescent whatever. Oh, really? Period. Yeah. You're a, you're a fan? Like, I guess not, like, puberty, but more of, like, kind of, like, develop my, the development of my adult taste. Mm-hmm. Like, and I think part of that is also just tied into the character. Like, the character is great. Yeah, I 
I gotta say, Clea Duvall is one of those actresses that I'm always, I need to be convinced each time. Nothing, it's it's not her fault. Yeah. Sometimes you just have actors or actresses like that where you're like, each role they play, every movie or TV show you see them in, you're like, okay, convince me. You're not like, oh yes, Clancy Brown, I'm already on board. It almost doesn't matter what he does. I'm like, Clea Duvall, all right, well, let's see what she has to say this time. I don't know why. I've seen mm-hmm. her in many things I really liked her in, but I'm a cheerleader. She's wonderful in that. But anyway, I was a little bit like, hmm. There's actors where you're immediately on board with believing them in that role. And there's actors where you're like, oh, the fact that I recognize this actor is kind of taking me out of it. And I am I need more convincing to get into believing them as this character. I think that's what it is. Aside from a little bit of romance between perhaps Sophie and Ben, we're not really given anything. I'm very interested to see what kind of relationship... Uh, non-romantic, obviously, but, like, what kind of interactions we'll see between Brother Justin and his sister. Iris. Who, Iris. Yeah, we don't get her name, I don't think. I think he just says my sister. Uh, she doesn't do much in the pilot, but she's played by Amy Madigan, who uh, I just... I took a moment to look up where I recognized her from, and it was just like, ah, the 80s, I see. <laughs> Movies in the 80s, got it. She definitely is going to be more of something, I'm sure. Uh, but I, I'll be interested to see what that interaction will be like because we all we know is that they are two unmarried, grown siblings, and he is the preacher, and she seems to be sort of filling the role that you know a wife might in the community yeah. and in his home. She's acting as sort of like a bit of housekeeper stuff. When they have that woman there, he says like, "Would you like anything? My sister could make you some tea." That sort of thing. Uh-huh. Um, which I just, I assumed initially, oh, that must, I was like, that's either his wife or not, depending on what kind of Christian this is. <laughs> I can't tell from the clothes. So I was like, I just, um... but yeah, then sister, I went, oh, maybe it is Catholic? Doesn't feel Catholic. What's, what are, is Catholic the only one where they don't marry? I can't remember. But I'm just, I'm interested to see what that relationship will be like since we just didn't get much yeah. of it. Before we move on from Cliffs and Ships, I have a question for you with regards to the opening monologue thing that Samson delivers at the very beginning of the episode. Oh, yeah. I, I, I skipped right over that. I mean, it's it's very it's very vague, and it's sort of hard to remember, but one of the, the things he says as he establishes the mythology of the show is that into every generation there's born a creature of light and a creature of darkness. Mm-hmm. Now, both of them have appeared... In this episode. What I find interesting is that every time I show the, uh, I show this pilot to a friend, uh, they have different opinions about who is who and what is what. And so I'm curious about your opinions of that, that, those, uh, designations. That's interesting because yeah, the show begins with Michael J. Anderson standing there close up of him black backdrop, nothing specific, Mm -hmm. and he just delivers this monologue about and into every generation, and it's very biblical sounding, and it's like, there will be a creature of light, and there will be a war between good and evil. And I didn't know yet at that point how literally to take that, Mm -hmm. because it's it's very biblical. And then it goes straight from that into the nightmares, Mm -hmm. and then we see Ben in his farmhouse. So that's how the show opens. So... I really, I think I thought at one point when we find out Ben has these abilities, I was like, oh, okay, so he's one of these creatures, perhaps? But it did not occur to me to wonder who the other one was. Like, it seems 
just from the pilot, now that you've posed that question, it seems like Ben and Justin must be the two because they seem to be the the, the main focuses of these two different storylines that we've seen so far. But it seems like pretty clear that either one of them could be either. Neither of them is shown to be notably good or evil. Seems like they both potentially have that in each of them. Hmm. That's funny. Them having the same nightmares did not even occur to me that, oh, I see, they're the the two creatures who are born to fight for good and evil because I just wasn't thinking of it literally yet. I didn't realize the show had that fantasy supernatural element. So, Um, yeah, I feel like it's pretty, I mean, it seems like the obvious answer is that this, you know, preacher is the good one and this, you know, run-down guy from a chain gang is the bad one. But that makes me think that it must be the opposite of the obvious. The opposite becomes the obvious. Uh, but then I'm like, wait, is that too obvious? Are they going to switch switch it back again? Are they going to double back on me? Um, I guess it could also be somebody else. Either of them could be, you know, could not actually be the creature. It just seems like Ben having such a powerful ability of this ability to heal and to give life. Yeah. What's fascinating to me is that there have been interviews and and discussions with the creator of the show. There are certain characters where there is an intention that it is this person or is in this role or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what I find interesting is that on rewatching, there's almost like Neville Longbottom syndrome where there are other people that could fit certain roles Mm -hmm. who don't have them for whatever reason. But it's almost like I, I have this, this, fan theory about one of the characters that like i really hope we watch all this because like i thought of it like my last watch through and i was like oh my god it's great yeah and i think the fact that the show stands up to sort of those repeated viewings and and that kind of like interpretive play is what makes it so great and i i hope i didn't like spoil anything by asking that question i I mean i i wasn't really thinking about it yet but uh, now that you've asked it and I've thought about it a little, really what I'm finding myself hoping now is that it's never established which is which. That even the characters in the show, whoever in the show is aware of this battle is knows to be looking out, if anyone knows to be looking out for these creatures of light and darkness, even they aren't sure mm-hmm. if it, who, is, who is who and which is which. I would like it if it was ambiguous. That's kind of what I'm yeah. hoping for. Speaking of things you are hoping for, Sarah, I think it's time we move on to... What will this show be? This is a segment where we talk about what we think the show's day-to-day is going to be. Sort of the nuts and bolts. Obviously, this show is not a procedural type show, but how do you see the week-to-week going on this, Sarah? It definitely feels like less of the, you know... Every episode, a thing will happen and deal with. Like, a a, a detective will have a different case. A person will solve a different mystery. Maybe a little less of that. But my guess would be every episode will be them stopping in a different town. Mm -hmm. Setting up, doing the carnival, meeting someone in the town. Their life is affected in some way by meeting the carnival. Sophie has that speech about the people in these towns. They're asleep. They're sleepwalking through their lives. And when the carnival comes to town, we wake them up kind of pitching the positive aspects of being a carny to Ben. 
when she says, oh, you know, uh, seems like you, there's a rumor that you might be sticking around full time. And he's like, oh, hardly. I'm no carny. And she's like, hey, dick, you're talking to one. So here's an idea. Maybe we're cool. But given that little speech, seems like probably each episode will be them stopping in another town and some sort of interaction happening with someone in the town, like with the little girl. Meanwhile, stuff happening between all the characters in the carnival, uh, stuff happening back in Mintern with Brother Justin. It'll be interesting to see how those two stories will balance out in the average episode. Because with the carnival, well, they can stop in a new town, new things can happen, all kinds of stuff happens when you're traveling on the road. New and exciting things happening each week to Brother Justin in one small town in California. It's harder to imagine where the the interest of the show will come from there. I will be interested to see how they balance out those two storylines in the future. I can't really make a prediction about that, but yeah, the stopping in each town seems like a, a solid place to start for a show premise. Let's move on to our segment where we yell, In this segment, we talk about where we recognize actors from. Uh, if we saw someone when ooh, 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 and you snap and point. Mm-hmm. Go, ah, you're a thing I've seen before, <laughs> but you have to IMDb them. And then sometimes you see them and you're like, holy shit, it's Clancy Brown. Oh, yeah. So obviously Clancy Brown, mm-hmm. the big one. Uh, Tim Decay. Tim Decay, who I only was recognizing from White Collar, and I didn't recognize right away. Uh-huh. Yeah, there was a moment where I went, oh, and looked at you and went, I just recognized him. Yeah. He's such a different character. Yeah. I mean, obviously, totally different time period, but also just a different type of person. Uh-huh. That was very interesting. I was like, oh, I'm going to love seeing him. Even though I only saw that one episode of White Collar, I just... I did somehow it watching it twice and it being part of the beginning of this podcast has yeah. really put it in my brain in a stronger and more memorable way than any other show that I've just seen once or twice. But it was interesting to see him. That was very uh-huh. cool. Um, Clea Duvall, of course, recognized her. Nick Stahl. He looked familiar and the name sounds familiar. Where do you know him from? I know him from quite a few things. Uh... I mean, he was in Sin City where he played that yellow bastard, but he's he's sort of this reliable, not quite pretty enough character actor. I'm, I'm having a hard time thinking of specific things I've seen him in, but he often sort of plays like a, a leading man role, but like with a twist. So it's like he has a past or a secret or something like that. Like he, he kind of does that mm-hmm. haunted thing. Yeah. Really well. Yeah. Uh there's, there's someone in this that you haven't commented on. Is there anybody else? Um, Amy Madigan, the, the brother Justin's sister, was familiar. There was a name in the credits that sounded familiar. Adrian Barbeau? Yes, thank you. Who's yes. Adrian Barbeau? Uh, she was sort of a, a B-movie uh, screen, screen queen. Uh-huh. She was in Swamp Thing and I think a few a few other of those like rubber suited monster grabs buxom babe and takes two lair films. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh and she's sort of like kind of like this yeah, like a B movie queen mm-hmm. who like aged very gracefully and just sort of has this presence of like I've been a few places. I know mm-hmm. a few things. Was she the woman playing the concertina? Yes. Oh, okay. Which she's, you know, the the difference between her and the in Carnival and sort of like I think the things you would actually know her in. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she and she was also I think at one point kind of a sex symbol 
Uh, there's mm-hmm. there's a few that name sort of yeah. fits in that category in my brain. There's a there's a few things like I remember the show C Lab 2021. There's the older character who's kind of like middle aged, uh, you know, like in his sixties, and he's like, ah, oh, yes. If I had magic, I would make an Adrian Barbobot. <laughs> like it's like kind of yeah. like it's like the kind of woman that like our our fathers would have maybe like. Yeah, you you like you. She is she. Her name was often used as shorthand for a sexy lady. Yeah. The way Gina Lola Brigida might have been, or um, Mae West, or something like. Oh no, not Mae West. Not Mae West. No. I mean, Mae West was sexy, but she was sexy because she was a sexual person. Not she was not a buxom babe. Oh. She didn't get her first film role until she was like in her late thirties or early forties or well, something. Well, then why like did that. they call flotation devices Mae West? Well, because she had a big bosom. Oh. But she was a sort of a big person in general. Oh, okay. Sorry, I, I, no, I, I would I'm, not put her. She's not. She wasn't like a statuesque, buxom, right, babe type person. Um, I <laughs> guess I I wouldn't put her in that category. All right. She's she's. I I mean I don't have I don't have I don't have a, a I, feeling sorry, about I was, either way. There's another name I was trying to think of, and I was uh, Bridget Bardot. There yes. you go. I was Thank like you. someone who sounds also kind of French. Adrian Barbeau, Bridget Bardot, totally similar yeah. sort of yeah. Sexy lady shorthand. Okay, moving on. Uh, that'll be in, uh, that's interesting to to find out because her character sort of you don't learn much about her right. except that she's been in the carnival longer than Jonesy has because Jonesy says this kid's trouble and she says that's what I said about you. Yeah. So that's all we really know about her that she has some sort of clout because she's arguing with Samson and Jonesy who are kind of established as being sort of maybe higher level uh-huh. uh, brass <laughs> in this yeah. carnival. Jones Jonesy is the uh, is sort of the the top. Uh, he's like the foreman of the roustabouts. He's kind of like the nuts and bolts mm-hmm. guy, and Samson is the the guy who's in charge of everything. Yeah. Okay. So Under jo- management. Samson. It goes management. Samson Jonesy in terms. Sort of. of yeah. Uh, but Jonesy hierarchy. has no authority over performers and artists. Right. Yes. Okay. Got it. The yeah. reason I'm speaking about it that way is. The fandom on this show is amazing, and people have made charts for these things. It's oh. incredible, and like genealogies and all this stuff. It's amazing. Whoa. Okay. Yeah, uh, I'm trying to think if there's someone else. There's one more. Okay. I obviously originally saw her in this, and then saw her uh, in Californication, Carla Gallo. But I believe you would recognize her. She. I I, I'm surprised you didn't recognize her. She is the the brunette dancer in the european muscle dancing tent <laughs> yeah the peep show i uh, she was not familiar oh to me so i uh, she's very distinctive looking i yeah. noticed the other woman in, in the tent looks a little more just sort of generic like very curvy mm-hmm. blonde hair the uh, she looked a little more like distinctive she she had more going on in the eyes dramatic but i don't she didn't look familiar where did you think i'd know her from from bones Playing a character called... Daisy Wick. In 33 episodes. Oh! oh. Wait. What? Oh, wow. Okay. A very different role. Did not recognize her. Uh. What is the Daisy Wick role? She's like a precious snowball of sunshine, adorable baby energy. She's like cute and innocent. I mean, she's also like a genius, but she's 
she's the girlfriend of God. It's it's been so long since I watched Bones, and I hated that show, even though I watched like six seasons of it. So I've erased a lot of it from my mind. But she's like the girlfriend of the. Uh, there's a character who's like a lawyer. The little brother from Freaks and Geeks grows up and is like a lawyer or something <laughs> on Bones. And his girlfriend is Daisy. I think I'm remembering that correctly. And she's, I just remember her being like somewhat innocent and, uh-huh. and young and precious. Well, also still smart, but like, just sort of like, I'm just the shy of, of a, like Lolita, you know? Not right. not the character, sorry. I mean, like, the uh, Japanese uh, fashion style. Excuse right. me, let me clarify. Not sexualized, like, uh, like uh, I am a you know adult man's fantasy of what a, a young girl is like. Not that kind of Lolita. Apologies. She's just as shy of having a big pink bow in her hair and, like, petticoats. Right. Uh, from what I remember about her. So, yeah, very different character is what I'm saying. Because in this peep show where we see her, she's just sort of, like, sultry and sort of, like, staring, like, I have intense eyes and also tits out, so like deal with it. Yeah, yeah, that's uh, that'll be interesting to see the character, knowing now that she's Daisy. Yeah, <laughs> weird. Yeah, definitely would not have recognized her, both because it's been a long time and because very different character. Speaking of characters, Sarah, do you have a favorite character in this, Sarah? Uh, from just this episode, I'm looking forward to seeing more of Loads. The Mentalist? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Seems interesting. Yeah, there wasn't immediately one character where I'm like, ooh, I need more of that person. But sometimes it takes you a minute to realize who you want more of. Um, I kind of like the bearded lady, but like, I just wish her beard was more realistic. I just wish they'd gotten a real, <laughs> a real bearded lady. Yeah. It's real fake. It's not the same color as her hair, which does happen sometimes. Some people, mm-hmm. you know, facial is a different color. But it, it felt in a very, like... Said Sarah, sitting across from me. <laughs> yours is barely different. There you've got, my, the, you've yeah. got the blonde bits, the lighter bits. But like, I've met people who are, like, brown hair on top, red beard. Yeah, like, yeah. a very distinct difference. However, in this case, it just looked like a fake beard. It was too long in the places where it was growing and then completely not there in the places where it wasn't. Uh-huh. It just felt fake to me. I was like, I mean, maybe this actress is going to prove to be just, like, amazing. But I was like, there's probably actual bearded ladies out there who uh, you could have cast in this. I guess part of me, I'm a huge fan of Freaks, the Todd Browning film, uh-huh. specifically because it, it cast entirely... In those roles, it cast entirely actual circus performers. Yes. Um, none of the unique physicalities were faked in that movie. And in this, obviously, all of them are. Not all of them. I guess Michael J. Anderson isn't. The the, the tall guy. He looked familiar. I'm sure I've seen him in other he, films. I, I feel bad. I don't remember his name. He also played the giant in Big Fish. Yes, that's where I'm recognizing him from. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So he's, he's an actual quote-unquote giant. Michael J. Anderson is an actual quote-unquote dwarf. Yes. Other than that, pretty sure everybody else is uh, fakey, fake, fake. The conjoined twins, definitely. Yeah. The uh, They make d- a point of, in in their act, mm-hmm. they're sitting on a on a thing, and they're they're wearing wigs and, like, a, I think, and, a, like, a outfit, and they're singing a song in French, but also there's a man kind of turning a crank, so the thing they're sitting on turns around, yeah. and they're... they're Clothes are draped in such a way that you can see where their hips are connected. Yeah. So part of the show is you getting to see 
get a peep. Yeah. And that definitely was like, oh yeah, that's um, that's a fake, for the, reals. Uh, Gecko the lizard man is also a uh, that's ma- that's makeup. That's makeup. Yeah, mm-hmm. I was uh, I was gonna guess. We only see him briefly when Ben is having his like whoa a bunch of freaks moment. Yeah, but actually Nick Stahl can actually heal people. Oh, interesting. Them. Yeah, I, I know it's a fun fact about the show. You know, and they didn't know that when they cast him, it yeah. was like. They just really loved him in the role, and then they were like, do you have any special abilities? We forgot to look at the part of your resume. Well, I can ice skate. Um, I can juggle up to four balls. Oh, I can heal people with my hands. I... <laughs> <laughs> Laugh at that, damn it. That was funny. I don't... I obviously don't want to spoil things for you by sure. talking about characters that I really like, but I, I already mentioned it earlier, but I, I just love Sophie and Clea Duvall's character. She gets to be complex and have contradictory aspects. Yeah. Which I think so often, especially in fantasy storytelling where they're going for like a mythic Mm -hmm. uh, kind of feel, they will... Lean more into archetypes? Yeah, and like women will either be Madonnas or whores or whatever. Like that kind of whole thing. And I just, what I love about Sophie there's, is... There's crones as well. Don't forget the crones. Oh, of course, the crones. <laughs> but, you know, Sophie gets to be, gets to be, you know, beautiful and and dirty and happy and sad. And she gets to have this range yeah. that f- feels like a very complete person and not just what the story needs her to be at a singular given moment. Yeah, that's a good point. She doesn't just embody the sort of like archetype of I am I am the gypsy fortune teller or whatever. Yeah. It's she's definitely has this complex relationship with her mother. There's the whole thing, the reason she goes to get gas that she wasn't supposed to go by herself apparently is she just uh-huh. she wanted to have a moment. She says she wanna have ten minutes by herself. Yeah. I'm interested to see the relationship between her and Jonesy actually. Because it definitely felt like a little bit of a of a sibling, like a protective older brother. A thing he he comes in and yells at her when he finds out what happened after Ben brings her back, um, and he you know basically says you know you were asking for it you should have known better and she's like oh it was my fault and she goes I asked those guys for a tank of gas a bottle of knee high soda and that's it everything else was them and I'm like yeah girl yeah and she slaps Jonesy across the face before she says that bit and it's like. She gets to end that conversation with "No, you don't," which I thought was really nice. That was a that was a good part. But yeah, um, I liked that. I just, I think the reason that I'm not sold on on Sophie yet is just I've got this weird thing where I need to be convinced about Clea Duvall's characters for some reason. Fair. But yeah, I I I can't tell how much I like Jonesy because I'm so delighted by Tim Decay being so different from what I've previously seen him mm-hmm. do. Or if I really like the character. I'm sure I'll like him as, as the character develops. But, you know, I, I, I think that, yeah, I want to see more from Jonesy. I want to see more of that relationship between him and Sophie. And that's pretty much it. I really quickly want to give a, a, a shout out to Stumpy. That's the, the barker from the cooch tent. <laughs> the, the Do they call it that on the show? Did I miss the cooch tent? They call it the cooch tent, yes. Wow. Uh, they do not mince words. No. You know, uh, it was reminding me of, there's a circus episode of Miss Fisher, because lots of shows uh, like to have a circus episode, mm-hmm. especially ones set, you know, before, you know, the, the 60s, let's say. Um, 
and in that they call it the peep show but with their accents the first two times i watched it i thought they were saying the pig show and i was like damn that's harsh <laughs> wow something about the way they say it i was like the pig show i was like ugh because they talk about it in the context of like one of the women is like i really don't want to do that don't make me like please <laughs> like one of the women is unable to do her normal job and they're like look you have to do something can't just let you like just sit around you know if you don't want to do your normal job then you got to do the peep show and she's like fine anyway it's it's yeah it felt right for them to be like i'll do the pig show but like <laughs> cooch tent that's a good one too but just like a, a little shout out to toby huss playing stumpy he is toby huss that name sounds familiar I have not seen him in anything else that I'm aware of. Uh-oh. Do we need to take a IMDb pause? Yes, we do. Mm, no, it doesn't look super familiar. So we just did a little IMDb break because Toby Huss sounded familiar to me. Folks, Toby Huss was Artie, the strongest man in the world. And the Adventures of Pete and Pete. Strangely, did not watch a lot of TV growing up, so he's looking at me blankly, but I'm delighted. <laughs> That's where I know his name from. He was all looking, strangely, was all looking up his IMDb and going, yeah, he's been a bunch of stuff. I don't recognize anything. And then I looked him up, and the first line of his Wikipedia is, Toby Hess is an American actor known for portraying Artie in the Nickelodeon series of Adventures of Pete and Pete. And my face went big gold grin. Anyway, that's where I know Toby Hess from. But apparently you really like Stumpy as a character. Yes, I, the, the journey that Stumpy goes on in this is just haunting. It's, it's... Mm, interesting. Because in the pilot, you, all you get from him is he's the barker for the peep show. Yeah. And he uh, organizes a little bit of uh, prostitution on the side. No, it's someone else. That wasn't else. him? Oh. The different character doing oh. that. But you'd Look, be there's forgiven. a lot of white dudes on this show. I can't be expected to keep them all straight. Dirty white dudes. Yeah. <laughs> Covered in dust. Uh, but it, I feel like a lot of times they kind of, it's set during the Dust Bowl, but there's a, a lot, I feel like not a lot of Dust Bowl slash depression stuff happens in the show because the show is like mythical, you know, black magic or whatever. Yeah. And, and yet Stumpy gets to exist in a very like tangible world. Yeah. You know, he he has real person problems. And I think that's mm -hmm. why I remember him in this kind of, like, way. You know, so, some of the characters get really into the, the magic stuff and some of them don't. And some of them have lives that end up being very practical and some of them don't. And Stumpy is just one of those characters who you can identify with his journey. And he's someone who's in a situation and who's lived a life. And I just, the way T Toby has plays that is, it's beautiful. Because even when the guy fucks up or, or succeeds, you're kind of on a journey with him. And it's not like he's someone off in the background having things happen. You get to see him and you get to see him react. Yeah. And he, he there's like, I'm thinking of three or four specific scenes where he just kills it. Yeah. I love Toby Huss. And apparently I need to go watch his earlier role that you love. Yeah. Oh, I mean, it's going to be a very different, uh, different thing. Uh, but... Yeah, I, I'm i super looking forward to that. Because, it, yeah, it's a character you don't get barely any of in yeah. the pilot, right? He just does his pitch for the peep show, and that's it. So, yeah, that'll be that'll be pretty cool to see more of that. Well, Sarah, shall we move on to your final verdict? 
This is usually the segment where we ask the question, does this pilot do the job of a pilot and make you want to watch more? And that's an easy yes for me, for sure. Like, it sets up enough of the world and the characters and sort of... I just... it It's... I mean, it's a good show, clearly. It's a well-made show and also right up my alley, kind of the kind of stuff that I like. And yeah, it just it, it definitely just gives you enough of kind of like, oh, here's this character doing this thing, but also there's these other characters. It fleshes out so much of this world that it's not even I like I yeah, I ended this episode not even thinking, ooh, I wonder who the light is and who the dark is and what their battle will be about. I'd completely forgotten about that. I was just thinking, wow, I want to know more about these characters and sort of what their deals are and like what their lives are like and what, yeah, what this mystery will be with Ben's life. I I, I want to know more about his mystery and all that, but I'm also just like, I want to know more about all these side characters, what their lives are like. I just, honestly, if we hadn't seen a lick of this Brother Justin raining blood stuff, I still would have been super into the show that was just about a Dust Bowl era traveling carnival. I'd be super on board with just that. So... A little bit of magic stuff too. I'm too. I'm super into it. I personally almost wish that the pilot of this had just been Ben, and that episode two had been Brother Justin's stuff from the first two episodes. Because I feel mm. like we don't really get a clear picture of what's going on with him and his whole scene. He's yeah. just kind of there. Yeah. And if there, like, I have one like negative critical thing about this pilot. It's that Ben gets a very complete and beautiful arc. Yeah. He gets to resist the call to adventure and all, you know all the sort of hero's journey stuff it's, it's really yeah. lovely that at the end he decides to take his power and, and use it yeah and, and also to join the carnival and go with yes. them as well yeah he's he makes two strong decisions yes of what to do with his life well and you could even argue three there's that moment where he talks to the the woman in the migrant camp who has the her, her oh, baby oh god i forgot all about that wow and knowing now that he had the power mm-hmm whoa i completely forgot about that yeah that makes that scene even more yeah intense yeah he's walking as he's walking away from the carnival he passes this camp of you know people stops to drink some water and this guy's he sees a woman singing to a sleeping baby and this guy's like it ain't right you know that baby's been dead for three days it deserves a proper burial but she won't let it go something like that um and so he walks up to her and talks to her. Mm-hmm. And it's it's a moment where you're kind of like, he, everything we've learned about him thus far makes you think he'll be like, none of my business, I better keep moving. Yeah. When he decides to go up to her, you're kind of like, I don't, I don't know what he, what is the, what's going to happen here. And he just very gently talks to her about her child, waits for her to say, mm-hmm. he's, he's dead, isn't he? And he goes, yeah. And she kind of starts crying and he offers to take the baby and gives the baby to the the child's father, Mm -hmm. who also cradles the baby tenderly and is crying, but in a, I know my baby's dead and it's time to, you know, to move on way, not in a, like, I'm pretending this baby's alive. Yeah, wow. It was such an odd scene that Mm -hmm. seemed only to serve to show Ben being kind. Yeah. And helpful to someone. But now, knowing that theoretically he could have brought that baby back to life is like wow just gives it a whole different yeah because they they didn't tip that at all they didn't hint at him they didn't have him hold the baby and like look at the baby and kind of 
think about it. Yeah. Nothing. No clue. To the point that, yeah, I'd completely forgotten. I didn't mention that scene in my recap because it mm-hmm. seemed not that important to the plot. Wow. It's just <laughs> it's like... It's got a lot going on. Yeah, it does. And it, that's why it's so rewarding on repeat viewings and why I keep watching it. Yeah. You know, just notice... Yeah, that's something that if I had not had this conversation with you about it, but had rewatched the pilot for any reason, yeah. I would have seen that scene and gone, oh, shit. Yeah. And, you know... that. Which is why I, I find all of the Minturn California stuff so frustrating because in that that stuff, the, the uh, brother Justin and Iris are incredibly strong characters that you barely get to see develop uh-huh. in this pilot. They're just kind of there. Yeah. Uh, that being said, like, oh boy, you're in for a roller coaster. Because it sounds <laughs> like you, you're going to watch more? Yes, yes. So uh, Final Verge, yeah, it's an easy yes for me. I will definitely... I'd be shocked if I didn't watch both seasons. I mean, it's only two seasons and they're short seasons. Yep. It's like, what is it, like 24 episodes? Total. Total, yeah. That's that's an easy yes. That's an easy commitment to the full show from me. Yeah, I'm, I'm excited. And I'm not, I'm not really... I was worried that when I watched the episode, I would remember too much about the reveal that mm-hmm. I had spoiled for me. And... I was worried that I it would be too much in the back of my mind. I'd be too constantly going, wait, is it, oh, wait, is it that, oh, wait, maybe this person is involved. And I almost completely forgot about it. It wasn't, I think, until the episode had ended that I went, oh, you know what? I bet that reveal I saw was the management. But I don't remember who it was, so mm-hmm. that's good. That's good news. <laughs> And well, it could be. I'm not like, it definitely was that. I, it could be something else. That just seems like the most likely candidate from the pilot. But it didn't necessarily have to be mentioned in the pilot. So I'm I'm absolutely looking forward to it and basically not at all reluctant based on my uh, experience with that spoiler. So I'm pretty stoked about it. Awesome. Thanks for finally giving me a reason to sit down and re-approach Carnival, strangely. You're welcome, Sarah. Thanks for listening to this episode of Pilot House. You can follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Pilot House Pod. Visit our website at pilothousepodcast.com or email us at pilothousepodcast at gmail.com to suggest future shows. Our podcast is entirely listener-supported, so thanks to this week's special guest star, Chris, for supporting us on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash pilothouse to find out how you can become a series regular. Pilot House is a Herringbone Society production. And on that note... Bye! Bye. I don't know what that was, but it was a thing. It happened.